The Weekly Harvest, an in-depth look at the Brandon Weekings and the WHL. Washman trying to come up with it for Allison. Here's Allison right in front. He scores! Brandon Jr. Hockey fans, you've waited two decades for this. In the league's 50th anniversary, your Wheat Kings are the champions. All right, hockey fans, episode 30 of the Weekly Harvest here on Q Country Radio as well in partnership with Westman Communications Group and the Brandon Wheat Kings. A special guest from just across the provincial borders, uh, a guy that fans uh, know and love and have seen a lot of over the years at dinners and on some Shaw TV broadcasts uh, and, of course, following his son around in the Western Hockey League as well. Uh, Jeff Rogers joining us uh, this week on the Weekly Harvest. And, Jeff, uh, I know it's been a bit of a strange time for everybody, but – you're kind of isolated out on the farm. Has that kind of been a, a nice uh, thing to have during this whole COVID pandemic? It actually has been, been a good thing. Actually, uh, the life of a farmer has probably changed uh, probably the least. Anyone uh, involved maybe picking up parts gives a whole new, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> d- dilemma to it, things like that. Uh, but no, actually, life in the farm hasn't changed a whole bunch. I think I probably never appreciated uh Living somewhere where I had as much space as, as I do within the last uh, however many months it's been since this whole thing started. So with that being said, I imagine your, your day-to-day hasn't been overly affected. Uh, I mean, maybe, uh, like you said, maybe less time heading to town for coffee with the, with the neighborhood fellas. Uh, but, I mean, have you had to change a whole lot uh, when it comes to your day-to-day? Not a whole lot. Like I said, really, on the farm, a lot of it hasn't been affected. Maybe the business side a little bit, but... Uh, you know, usually a guy's uh, scrambling, trying to run to do things on weekends, see people. So uh, I guess uh, it gives a guy a lot more time to work and get things done as if a farmer needs that because he never get caught up. So actually this spring got a lot of odd jobs done that probably never would have got done otherwise. Well, we want to – we'll start back uh, when you were just a young guy and obviously farming was always in your blood. But it, coming from small-town Saskatchewan, you probably had the run of the rink. Uh, what was it like growing up? in such a small town uh, in Spy Hill. And, and was that pretty much the case where either you knew the guy who had the key to the rink or was the door just left open? Well, no, it, it was kind of like that. Like hockey was a big thing. Everybody played hockey. All your buddies played hockey. Uh, you know, and at that point, we had all the ice we can get. You could play up an age group. Plus, you could play with other towns. I think uh, the year, my second year, Pee Wee, I think I played with seven or eight different teams throughout the year. So, uh Actually, looking for ice was never a problem. It was probably uh, your mom yelling at you to get your homework done because you're always playing hockey every night. It was the biggest issue you went through. Would you, th- would you think in the grand scheme of your development, maybe as opposed to growing up in a city, all that ice time gave you and, and you know kids from around the area that much more of an edge? Back then, I think it did. You know, It wasn't as uh, intensified with the training and specialized as it is now, so you just played and I always laugh because you know when I played junior nobody ever had a skating coach and you if you knew the team you could tell each guy without even seeing the number on the back of the jersey <laughs> just walk just by the way he skated because everybody had their own unique skating style whereas now you watch the guy skates and uh you know a lot of them are same they got the same stride the same everything going whereas back then it was, it was more of a unique I guess I'll put it the polite way well, you had a, an opportunity early on to, to deal with some adversity, which, you know, I, I've been, you know, spent the last couple of days just reading up on some articles that have been written about you over the last few years. And, uh, you know, you talk about the kind of non-conventional road and it pretty much started right out of the gate, uh, getting cut from midget early on. Uh, just tell us a little bit about how that all came about. Were you, you know, fully expecting to make the team and it was a bit of a surprise or, or what was that like at a young age having to deal with that or well, going to AAA Midget Camp in, in Yorkton, uh, you really didn't have much exposure to it. I didn't know what to expect. You know, went to camp and then end up being probably one of the last cuts, with, which probably, you know, pretty devastating. Uh, I wanted to go on. I wanted to give junior hockey a try. I really didn't know a whole bunch about it except for I wanted to play there. And I knew playing AAA Midget was a huge step to try and get there. So, you know, getting cut from Yorkton, uh, AAA Midget, it was probably one of the first times you just begin to wonder – you know what, is this going to work out? Uh, like, I want to play hockey and how far I can get, but, you know, maybe it's not realistic. I'll just end up staying in my hometown and playing, uh, you know, the rest of my life. But as it turned out, uh, you know, everything that happens usually happens for a reason. You know, I got cut from the AAA midget, played some AA midget, and had a really good year. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, a friend of mine, Kevin Kaminsky, was playing up in, uh, you know, everybody knows Killer. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, former Saskatoon Blade and, you know, NHL, like, legendary competitor. Uh, he was playing in Saskatoon. And he said, well, why don't you come up to the spring camp we have going on up there? So I went up to a spring camp, uh, ended up making a team with Saskatoon Blazers and played on a line with Killer and really kind of got some exposure that way. Now, I think if my memory serves correct, you met another guy who had an NHL uh, career both uh, on and off the ice and Kevin Sheveldayoff. He was, was he the same age as you on that team or was he just uh, in that rough ballpark? No, he was actually a year younger. Uh, you know, he was first year. By the time I made Saskatoon, I was second year midget. Uh, so we, you know, we were teammates with the Blazers and that's actually, uh, a big reason why I came to Brandon. Uh, Chevy was protected by the Brandon Weekings and a scout named Mickey Bootsman, who anybody knows hockey and Brandon from years ago, uh, was around the rink for years and just one heck of a hockey guy. Uh, he was up watching, uh, Chevy all the time. And, you know, at that time I wasn't protected by a WHL team and he'd seen something he liked. So. Uh, by him watching Chevy, uh, Mickey ended up putting me on the Brandon Weekings protected list. That's kind of how the whole uh, Brandon connection got started. Now, you mentioned, you know, wanting to play uh, junior hockey, but being where you were geographically, you weren't overly close to, say, the Pats or, or the Wheat Kings to maybe go to games frequently as a, as a young kid. You were probably more in the SJHL kind of driving range between, you know, whether it be Yorkton, Melville, or, you know, those type of teams. So what was your what was your knowledge of the Western Hockey League at that time? You know, it was really minimal. Um, you know, I don't. I think I'd only been to probably one or two junior hockey games myself before I actually played played in one. Uh, you know, I, I knew I wanted to get as far as I could. I know junior hockey was was the level uh, that you had to go through in the Western Hockey League. Like I said, we got uh, Brandon TV on the farm, so they followed the Wheat Kings. Uh, you know, at nightly sports, so I followed them a bit and kind of. Really, that was as much exposure as I had to the Western Hockey League. Uh, it really wasn't covered in the papers at home. So just bits and pieces we've seen on highlights was, was all I really knew about it. So do you remember, I mean, this is a long time ago, 1986. <laughs> I mean, to think about how, <laughs> how long ago that is now. Do you remember your first camp in Brandon? And maybe what are some of your first uh, memories of, of the Brandon Weekings? Well, actually, I went to a spring camp that year, uh, you know, and went with, uh, you know, a new Chevy there. So we hung out quite a bit. Uh, then we came to fall camp, and, and actually it was quite the year because that year they didn't even know if they were going to have a team. There was rumors the team was going to go to Billings. Uh, when they had the scheduling meeting, they didn't even send anybody to the league scheduling meeting because they weren't sure if we were going to have a team in Brandon or not. Uh, so there's a whole lot of uncertainty on the team, came to camp, um, and you know what? And a lot of guys didn't know if there was going to be a team or not. And fortunately for me, because at that point, Brandon was probably one of the few teams that I, that I could make. Uh, we had a coach in uh, Mark Pezen. Uh, Bill Shinsky had come on board as the, as the general manager. Uh, I remember coming to camp and them telling you that, you know, everybody comes has a legitimate shot at making that team. Um, you know, I got there. I kind of liked the city. I felt comfortable with Chevy. Uh, we were, they built it us together. So, you know, just a lot of uh, good memories and a lot of firsts. You didn't know any of the teams. You didn't know a lot of the stuff that was going on. So, like I said, for me, it was a lot of firsts and a huge uh, learning curve. So a lot of uncertainty, I guess, would be how I remember the first camp. Well, certainly with a guy like Chevy who had a great career in Brandon and, and you guys kind of, when you when people think of that late 80s era, I mean, you two are, are usually the first two guys that, that come to mind. But who else, uh, you know, throughout your four years in Brandon, you know, did you gravitate to or maybe took you under your wing and helped guide you through, you know, the teenage years of playing junior? Well, you know, when I first got there, there were some guys there. Um, I remember like uh, Troy Arndt, uh, Murray Rice, uh, Lee Trim were some, you know, older veterans that were, they were always good to me, you know, and the, and the younger guys. And then we had kind of a group of younger guys there with, with Chevy. Um, you know, I think probably the one thing I do remember is like the Western League was a very, very physical league. And uh, it was kind of in Brandon, you either uh, stood up for yourself uh, and learned how to defend yourself or you kind of got taken advantage of so for me and Chevy it was a pretty steep learning, learning curve and you know Chevy was probably one of the toughest 16 year olds that I have ever seen you know he had some unbelievable tilts that year and uh, there wasn't a lot of guys to back him up so we were kind of thrown into it. Coming from like you know the midget ranks now I'm not sure you know equipment wise back then were you guys in midget were you wearing full cages at that point or was were you kind of still open-faced right through till junior? Was that a big transition? Uh, no, actually, yeah. We had the uh, the full cages. 
through most of my minor hockey. I remember when I first started uh, playing through eight and under and stuff, we didn't have the cages, but then uh, the cages came in for the most of my minor hockey. So coming to the Western League, you know, and wearing the visors, that, that was a big deal. That was what you wanted. You couldn't wait to get rid of that cage <laughs> of the kid and, and skate around there and actually feel the, the air going through. So, uh, you know, that was a big adjustment. It just kind of made you feel like you were one step closer to getting there, wearing, being able to wear that visor. So, no, that was a, a big deal. Uh, we had the Cooperalls. They had just uh, come into play then, too. So we were all wearing the Cooperalls, and uh, it was it was quite the time. <laughs> the Cooperalls, uh, I've heard a lot of uh, people say, and I, Ray Ferraro was one of them, he said, uh, Cooperalls were great, but when you fell down, uh, you couldn't stop. <laughs> you couldn't slow yourself down because <laughs> they were so slick, especially on the wet ice. Uh, you look at your career in Brandon, and, and obviously uh, you were a guy who was known for your toughness, but in the same breath, you know, you put up 60, 65 points in your last few years, got progressively better, almost a 40-goal scorer. Uh, in your final year in Brandon. Now, you had to have some NHL interest, and I know that not getting drafted was something that uh, maybe down the line lit a bit of a fire under you, did it? Well, it did, and especially, you know, when I seen the guys that did get drafted that I kind of compared myself to in the league. Uh, So when I didn't get selected, it was was disappointing to say the least. Uh, But at the same point, I knew a lot of the guys that got drafted. In my mind, I didn't think I was that far behind. So there was that glimmer of hope that, hey, if these guys are getting a chance and getting a legitimate shot, there is hope for me if, uh, you know, I keep believing in myself, keep working hard, um, you know, there could be a possibility of it. And, you know, going into the draft, we had our interviews. Uh, there was teams that expressed interest, a couple teams that said, yeah, if you're there in the sixth or seventh round, we'll definitely take you. And, you know, I remember getting together, uh, there's a few guys, there was, uh, well, Chevy, Obviously, he was got drafted the one year, but uh, Cam Brown, Troy Frederick, uh, a few of the guys, we got together on draft day, and there was a chance we were going to get drafted. I remember sitting there, and you know the rounds kept going over and by, and it was six rounds, seven rounds, eight rounds, and you know there was twelve rounds for God's sakes back then. And uh, <laughs> after the twelfth round went by, and we didn't get drafted. It was uh, well, it looks like it's back to the drawing board, boys. I don't know what's going to happen here. I imagine when you guys didn't get drafted, you may have headed to the to the local uh, uh, brew pub <laughs> and grabbed a case of beer and tried to uh, forget about it. Uh, you know, I wanted to ask, and I've had a couple people send in some questions, uh, some fans. Uh, the one question we got uh, from a fan named uh, Jeff, ironically enough, uh, tell us about when the Brandon Wheat Kings bus ran out of gas. <laughs> do you remember that? Oh, my. Oh, I do. We were, we were coming back from uh, Prince Albert. And I'm not sure exactly how it was. It was, if it's eight hours there, eight and a half hours back. But anyways, I think it was like eight and a half hours there. And our bus driver couldn't figure it out because we have enough fuel for uh, 16 hours. (laughs) It was eight and a half hours there, eight and a half hours back. So, yeah, do the math. An hour outside of Brandon and it runs out of fuel. And uh, as usual, going to Prince Albert, the game didn't go anywhere near the way we wanted it to. So we were feeling... uh, not too great about ourselves as it was, but uh, sitting in a cold bus with no fuel, we just kind of just uh, summed up uh, most of our season anyways. Now, back then, uh, you know, the travel was was probably a lot rougher than, than the players have it now. And, and we'll touch on both your sons who, who had a chance to play some junior as well. But is the bus something that when you think about it now, can you believe that you guys were just all crammed on an old iron lung and put on the miles that you did? Because you know, the stories I've heard from, from your generation and from the guys into the early 90s, that bus might not have passed a safety today. <laughs> no, it probably wouldn't. And there was no bunks <laughs> and there was no internet. There was nothing. Probably one of the, well, that one year, uh, like I said, that we didn't even send anybody to the scheduling meeting because they know if they had a team. We played home and home with Medicine Hat. And the first game was in Medicine Hat. We left that morning. We drove all the way to Medicine Hat, got off the bus just before warm-up, played the game, turned around, drove all the way back to Brandon and played Medicine Hat in Brandon the next night. So that was just like some of the trips. And there was no staying in hotels and coming back the next morning. It was get home, boys, and you get home when the sun's coming up and you grab a couple hours of sleep. I even think it was on a school night, and, uh, and then we played the <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and then we played the next night. So those type of trips, you know, you do remember. I remember going out, working our way out to Calgary. We played six games in eight nights, 
Um, and we were just beat. And our coach, Mark Pezen, came in before warm-up, and he said, you know what, guys, if you don't want to go up for warm-up, don't bother. You know, we just got to get get through this. Uh, we end up having, uh, I think we were killing a penalty, and then we had a line brawl. So we were getting outnumbered, and we were just getting pummeled. Uh, we had, and I remember uh, looking back at the coach, and I went to jump over the bench, and uh, Craig Heisinger, uh, you know, was our trainer at the time. He grabbed me by my neck and held me back. He says, you got to make sure somebody else is coming if you're going to go, kid. <laughs> so he probably saved me a, a lengthy suspension also. Oh, that's uh, that's awesome. Now, you did get your shot uh, at a with a training camp invite to the to the Minnesota North Stars. Now, I find it absolutely fascinating that over the course of your career, you played for uh, three organizations that no longer exist, and the Minnesota North Stars, <laughs> the Kansas City Blades, and the Atlanta Thrashers. And we'll touch on that in a little bit. But you get your shot to go to Minnesota with the North Stars. They don't sign you, but that was kind of a confidence boost for you that, that you really needed after not getting drafted. Well, it was because you just, you know, you don't know if you're even close. And, uh, you know, I, I tell the story all the time. Um, I was, I got a, an invite to camp and I was in Brainerd, Minnesota, skating at their development camp uh, for the summer. I came back for Week King camp and I was getting ready to head off to Kalamazoo, Michigan for North Stars camp. And Doug Sauter was our coach. And uh, he calls me in the office before I'm ready to leave. And he says, you know what, kid? It's awesome you got this tryout, but I'm going to be honest with you. He says, if you go there, Nobody knows who you are. He says, you don't got a contract. You're not drafted. He says, if you want to be serious about making that team, you make them write your name down every time you're on the ice. You know, and uh, Doug, he just put it as blunt and as honest as he could. He sent me out of the office there. I remember go, driving to Winnipeg right from that meeting. Got on my first ever plane ride. <laughs> went to Kalamazoo, Michigan for training camp. Show up for training camp. I registered, and they gave me this envelope full of cash. I thought I'd made the team already by the cash they gave me, but it was, it was just our per diem. You know what I mean? So I went out and celebrated. I bought myself a fitted baseball hat. That's how I treated myself with all this cash. But, uh, and then going into camp, I said, I got to make them write my name down, make my, write my name down. And, uh, my first scrimmage, I lined up against a guy named Basil McCray, who was, you know, their captain, uh, had 300 minutes the year before. And we ended up fighting four times in that scrimmage until they finally kicked us off the ice. So, uh, true to Doug, I, I made him write my name down in that first scrimmage anyways. Now, uh, from what I understand and, and doing a little bit of uh, looking back, it was kind of a, an opportunity for you to, to again, choose, choose your path. And I mean, you touched on it, how Brandon was probably the team in the Western Hockey League that at the time you had the best chance to make. Now, you've told different media over the years that that's partially why you chose the San Jose Sharks. They were an expansion team. They weren't going to be playing right away, so you knew you'd have some time. Uh, is that kind of the biggest reason why you chose San Jose over you know any of the other teams that had maybe put a contract in front of you? It, it really was, because at, at the time, uh, I could have signed with either Vancouver or San Jose for the exact same contract, the exact same money. And, and like I said, San Jose wasn't even going to have a team the following year. But I looked at it, and uh, as a team, they realistically have a chance of making I thought an expansion team would be my best bet. So that's, you know, why I went with San Jose. And plus, uh, being in California probably didn't hurt either. Uh, you know, <laughs> the kid growing up in Saskatchewan, you know, the idea of playing in California kind of had that draw to it also. Yeah, I was, I was going to say, you probably went from, you know, you're, you're not used to going to the rink when you can't see your breath. Uh, was that an adjustment <laughs> playing in the, in the hot California sun? You know what? Actually, it, it was awesome because it just, you know, you're so focused on hockey all the time that, you know, playing in an environment like that and a climate like that, when you left the rink, there were so many other things to do just to kind of get your mind off it and just off the, you know, a bit of the stress and the anxiety. So there were so many things to do. Once you left the rink, I found it uh, very helpful, actually, and uh, actually enjoyed it more than being in a climate where, you know, you didn't have those opportunities. Talk to me about your first NHL game. Did, did you have enough time to get some, some family and some friends down there? And, and, and who was it against? And what do you remember from that? You know, I didn't have time to get my family out there. I got uh, called up against the New York Islanders. Uh, it was in New York against uh, the Islanders and, and Nassau Coliseum. Well, no, direct flights from, uh, no direct flights from Spy Hill to New York? <laughs> well, I was out of, left out of Kansas City is where, where I came from. I got a phone call. We just came off a road trip. And I got a call the next morning saying, you're going to New York. So I got in a plane, 
went to New York, got in for practice the day before, and then we played against the Islanders. And uh, our coach at the time was uh, George Kingston, probably one of the nicest, most respected men in hockey. Well, not even in hockey. George is just an unbelievable guy. Um, and, you know, he knew my role and he knew kind of how I was from training camp. And he could see I was so nervous. So he called me in the coach's office and he would send, you know, Aji, you're not here just to fight. We want you to play, you know, go up there and play your game. And I was like, yeah, 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 whatever. So sure enough, second shift, I ran to a guy named Mick Pakoda. Gloves come off and uh, we have a bit of a tilt. I remember him picking me up and almost throwing me right into my own bench. So I figured, <laughs> you know, the guys are pretty strong up here. So I, but I was able to survive and get out of that one. So, you know, and growing up, you know, as an Islanders fan, they'd won those four cups. And I remember looking around that rink after and saying, you know, holy man, I just played a game in the National Hockey League. Like, how cool is this uh, to play it, you know, in New York against the Islanders? And it was just like uh, really surreal. And I just kind of sat there thinking, wow, this happened. Your first season, 61 games, uh, you know, 217 penalty minutes. But I imagine that of that first year, as every kid's dream growing up to score a goal in the NHL, who did you score your first goal against? Actually, my first goal, I was playing on a line with uh, Dean Emerson, another uh, former Brandon guy, and uh, Paul Fett. And, uh, you know, we had formed a line there, and, and the coach, Kingston, he liked our energy. So we started a lot of the game. So we were starting against the New York Islanders, ironically, at home. Um, and at the time, it was the quickest goal in Sharks history, uh, scored it against uh, Steve Weeks, who was playing that for the Islanders. So, yeah, I, I'm not going to forget that one. Oh, that's, uh, that's what every kid growing up in Saskatchewan, Manitoba, they've played that out on the street or out on the backyard pond in their mind over and over again. Now, in your third season of pro hockey, not only are you playing hockey, not only are you now the alternate captain for the San Jose Sharks, but you have a son right before the season starts in John. So how did that change your, your whole hockey mindset? Because I imagine all of a sudden now those stresses and anxieties have gone through the roof right before hockey season. Well, yeah, you know, it, it changes dynamics. And at the time, you know, you think you're a lot older than you are, but looking back on it, I think I was you know, 23 or 24 and you're, you're playing in the NHL, you're playing in California and then you throw, you know, a family into the mix. So it, it is a lot to deal with. And I remember, uh, you know, he was born uh, about four o'clock in the morning and we had a scrimmage for training camp. And I think the scrimmage was at nine thirty or whatever. And uh, true to my, my form, I made the scrimmage. So I was actually showed up for the scrimmage. And at that time we had signed a couple guys, uh, Igor Larionov and Sergei Makarov. And uh, I'm not sure if Kevin Constantine was just kind of rewarding me for coming to uh, to the rink after, uh, you know, the wife gave birth to a baby. But uh, you know, he put me uh, on a line with Makarov and Larionov to start the game. I'm sure Larionov and Makarov were not as excited as I was. But it was pretty cool. Yeah, who's this hillbilly from Canada? Though? <laughs> you get named captain in 94, and, and I know I've read a lot of your quotes and, and uh, watched a, a bunch of videos about how that all came about. Now that, you know, maybe a lot of fans don't know this, but sometimes the, the captaincy is voted on by the team, and other times it's a coaching staff management decision. You have said before that being named the captain of the Sharks was a real proud moment because it was decided on uh, amongst the, the players. Now, did you know that you were up for the, the spot or was it kind of a surprise when all of a sudden your, your sweater had some extra cloth hanging on it? Well, I, I, I didn't know. I, I knew they were having the vote at the time. I was an assistant captain. Um, so, I, and I didn't know if it would happen or not being a younger guy. And there was, you know, a lot of veteran guys on that team. Uh, so like I said, for me to get uh, voted on as captain by my teammates was probably one of the biggest honors that I've had, you know, while playing, especially personally, because, uh, you know, it's your, your teammates' opinion that you respect and what the guys in that room think of you. And to be uh, chosen as captain was definitely, you know, one of the greatest honors I could think of. Now, from, from San Jose, you make probably, I don't know, geographically, it's got to be quite the track to one year in Boston. Now, my question that I – another question I got in from one of the fans was, what's the biggest difference in playing in the Western Conference – as opposed to playing on the Eastern side? Was it, was it as it is now where the Western seems like it's kind of bigger and tougher and the East is more skilled? Or back then, was it, you know, less of a, a divide? I, I think it was less. Like, you know, the West was a little bit more wide open back then. Uh, the East was a little bit 
tougher checking. You had New Jersey out there, which it kind of set the tone. So, you know, teams were copying New Jersey and you had the trap set up and it was, it was pretty tight. But, you know, the biggest thing that I noticed right away was the travel and just the number of nights that you spent in your own bed. Like uh, we'd leave after a game and uh, you'd be home before you're done your second beer. I was like, what the heck's going on? We're not home already. You know, like we must have like three or four hours left. No, we're actually home. We're landing. But uh, no, the, the travel was the biggest difference. I think the year, you know, the New York Rangers won the Stanley Cup. After January 20th, they never spent one night away from their own, out of their own beds. Uh, and it's hard to believe. But in San Jose, we couldn't even land in San Jose after 11 o'clock because of a noise ordering. So we had to fly to Oakland, even if we're playing in LA, which was a short flight, we'd land in Oakland and have an hour bus ride back uh, just to get home. So by far, the travel was the biggest difference. And, you know, the style of play was a little bit maybe, but no, the the travel and the time away from, from home was definitely the biggest adjustment. Now, I imagine, you know, based on kind of your age and, and when you grew up playing for Boston was another kind of small town Prairie kids dream for a lot of guys. Was that kind of a, your favorite team growing up or were you a, a Bruins fan? And is that kind of why you, uh, you know, you cherished that one year in Boston? Well, I, I did. I was a Bruins fan growing up. Uh, you know, the big bad Bruins uh, like Terry O'Reilly and those guys, uh, you know, Bobby Orr. I remember, you know, watching him when I was a kid too in Hockey Night in Canada. And so I was excited to go to Boston. You know, it was the first time I was ever traded. Uh, so I went, okay, I'm going to the Bruins, one of my favorite teams growing up. I'm going to meet a lot of these guys. The Bruins had not missed the playoffs in 29 straight years. Well, guess what? <laughs> <laughs> We, it, you know what? We finished dead last in the league. It was just uh, a terrible year, hockey-wise, whatever. Uh, great bunch of guys, great teammates. You know, uh, Harry Sinden was awesome to me through it all. But just as far as hockey went, it definitely was not the year that uh, I had envisioned playing for the Boston Bruins. Yeah, that's funny how sometimes uh, everything just seems to change uh, when they switch up the roster a little bit. You mentioned they were changing and kind of going through a transition period, which is kind of what led you to Colorado. Now, looking through the rosters of the teams that you all played on, there's probably zero argument when I say that the Colorado Avalanche had some of the most skilled players you've ever played with all combined into one roster. Is that a safe assumption? Oh, without a doubt. You know, I walk into that room. And all of a sudden, you got Patrick Waugh, Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg, uh, Claude Lemieux, Yeri Curry. Uh, the list goes on and on. Like Adam Deadmarsh, Adam Foote. Just, you know, and the thing about that team is not only were they unbelievable hockey players, but they are unbelievable people. Like, they had a great bunch of guys. And, you know, playing for – it was the first time that I actually had the opportunity to play for a winning team, like over 500. All through my junior career, you know, we struggled. Uh, even in uh, San Jose, the years we made the playoffs, we were still under 500. So it was the first time I actually got to play in a team that was expected to win, you know, when you went out there every night. And I actually learned more, uh, you know, about coaching and attitude because a lot of times, you know, when you lost a game before, uh, that you were just beat into it till you played your next game. Whereas, you know, playing for the Avalanche, when they did lose, it was okay, guys. Park it and move on. There's nothing we can do about it now. Let's just, we don't get mad, we get better. So, actually, just from a hockey perspective and, you know, carrying forward to coaching later on, I learned a ton from my experience in Colorado. Yeah. And then, you know, we touched on you playing for organizations that don't exist anymore, but you've also got another strange mark on your career resume by being drafted in an expansion draft uh, back in 2000 uh, by Minnesota but you never did play a game for them. What was the whole transaction surrounding the expansion draft, and how, how did you end up in Atlanta? Well, so you had the expansion draft where Minnesota and Atlanta came into the league. Um, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall. Uh, in Colorado, they had some younger guys coming in, Scott Parker, for example. So they had some younger guys that played my role that I could see kind of moving in. So they exposed me for the expansion draft, which was a great thing. Uh, so I got picked up by Minnesota. Um, so I went there, had a young family at the time. So I figured, you know what, I'm going to get everybody settled. I went in there, bought a house, got the kids in school, got everything all set up. Um, and at that time they had a waiver draft. So every team was allowed to pick so many players. Um, 
and then the rest would be exposed. Well, I was protected to begin with. And then the way it worked, uh, Minnesota picked up Matt Johnson from Atlanta. Sort of when they picked someone up, they had to expose a guy. So I ended up getting exposed through Minnesota. And George Kingston was the assistant coach in Atlanta. So they, in turn, picked me to Atlanta. <laughs> of course. So it's kind of a long roundabout way. But so, yeah, I went from, in a matter of just a few months, I went from Colorado to Minnesota in the expansion draft, and then from Minnesota to uh, Atlanta in the waiver draft. So it was, yeah, w- quite a whirlwind for a few months. But uh, going to Atlanta turned out to be good. I wanted to go to Minnesota. You know, a bit of leadership and being an older guy and an expansion team. So I kind of got that same chance and opportunity in Atlanta. Now, obviously, the the running joke right now, Winnipeg and, and Calgary playing in the NHL playoff qualifying round right now, kind of a two franchises that the city of Atlanta kind of let out of their grip. <laughs> <laughs> Why did hockey not work in Atlanta? I mean, you were there in the early days where there still was probably quite a bit of excitement. But from your perspective, why didn't hockey work in Atlanta? We didn't win. That's plain and simple. Simple solution. Simple. If you look at it, uh, you know, Carolina went through its struggles. Uh, Tampa Bay went through its struggles. Um, You know, and those were teams were on the brink of, you know, maybe not making it. And they put runs together, had Stanley Cup runs, uh, and turned it around. That never happened in Atlanta. They were there, what was it, 11 years? They made the playoffs once and won one and didn't win a game. Yeah, they got swept by the Rangers, I think, that that one time. The only year they made it. So you have to be able to at some point build some momentum. And that never got established there. It just didn't. And that's otherwise, you know, if you would have had to put together a run like Tampa Bay or Carolina or, or Washington had where you get that year where you have that long run and generate that excitement, I fully believe that, uh, you know, the Thrashers still could have been uh, viable and up and going in Atlanta. Well, part of me, uh, as a Manitoba kid, I'm glad that it didn't work out because it's kind of allowed me to, to relive the the Jets that left when I was about six years old and uh, certainly left a, a hole <laughs> in my fandom. But uh, from, from there, for you, uh, you know, I wanted to go back to, to your kids. Now, both probably had a great opportunity that most kids don't get to. Did you get a chance to bring them in and around the locker room and, and hang out with the guys and other, other players' kids growing up? For sure I did. You know, and that was one thing about having a, a family young. Uh, both my boys kind of – they really remember being in that NHL locker room and being around the guys and, uh, you know, and the guys were so good with kids. I remember uh, Danny Heatley and his dad uh, were in town for Thanksgiving. So we had him over uh, for Thanksgiving dinner. So me and his dad are up visiting and I look downstairs and there's Danny Heatley and the boys playing knee hockey downstairs in, in, in the basement. You know what I mean? So there were so many opportunities of just being around those guys. Mark Denis in Colorado used to set up his goalie equipment in the dressing room uh, like he was dressed in net and so the guys could shoot tape balls and stuff at him so just all those memories and stuff they had exposed to and just being around the guys and just seeing how they you know conducted themselves you know was a huge opportunity for all those kids you know in Colorado we had an older team so there were so many kids every time after practice when it wasn't a school day practice wasn't even over and there'd be about 11 helmets uh you know <laughs> on the bench just kind of peeking over at different levels ready to jump on the ice as soon as practice was over. Uh, they kind of embraced that. The kids were welcome to the room. So it was a, a huge opportunity and, and great exposure, you know, for my two boys to have an opportunity like that. Well, I had a great opportunity, uh, you know, in the um, the year that your son John was playing with York, and he ended up uh, getting hurt the year that they won the RBC, but he kind of came on as kind of a Reggie Dunlop type assistant coach <laughs> slash player coach. And I was working for the, the Melfort Mustangs at the time, but the league had asked me to join up with Benny Walchuk, who is still the voice of the Yorkton Terriers. And uh, I got to do color uh, right through the Western Canada Cup uh, on radio with the Terriers and Benny at, at GX. So I got to spend some time uh, with your son, John. But he has now turned into another guy who's in the pro hockey ranks, albeit not as a player, uh, working in the Minnesota Wild organization with their American League club as their conditioning coach. Now, how did that all come about? Because I imagine, you know, after a few years at the University of Regina, uh, opportunities like that probably don't come up for everybody. But uh, having uh, grown up where he did, and as you mentioned, uh, around the locker room, he probably made a few connections uh, over the years. Well, he, he did, you know, and it was uh, a lot of it was on him. Uh, you know, he, uh, 
he got into strength conditioning. He got into the, you know, the bodybuilding, the powerlifting. He took kinesiology uh, and ended up getting his uh, master's in kinesiology. Uh, we were down in San Jose for a, for a fancy camp. Um, and, you know, he got introduced to their strength coach. They kind of hit it off. So he actually spent about three months in the one summer working with the San Jose Sharks, helping their guys. Uh, they were doing rehab and just kind of learning how it was going to work to be a strength lifting coach and what all it kind of entailed. Uh, and from there, he went on, got his master's, um, and ended up, uh, you know, applying for the job in, in Des Moines, Iowa, for the strength coach of the Iowa Wild, and actually got the position. So, you know, a great opportunity to get uh, the head job in the American Hockey League as your first job. But, you know what, he's got a passion for it. He absolutely loves what he does, uh, and it shows. And, uh, you know, I, I feel very fortunate that uh, he can do something that he's that passionate about. Now the other uh, the other boy the younger one uh, Dakota he's a guy Weeking fans know of course he spent time in in Swift Current in Vancouver uh, and then of course his last year uh, in the dub playing just over forty games with Moose Jaw just down the highway played against Brandon a, a bunch and uh, st- is he still playing at Carlton I know he's got three years under his belt is he is he going back for another or is this COVID thing kind of put a wrench in that Well you know it's up in the air and and it's really unfortunate especially for the university athletes just the way it's all playing out right now they've told him his classes are in line and uh, that his season is off until January for sure and the possibility that it might be cancelled for good and I just man I I know it's it's a lot bigger than just sports I get that but you know for those guys that have gave their heart and soul for that many years they go into their, their senior year or their last year whether it be football or basketball or volleyball, and then all of a sudden have it end like that, it's just not right for those kids. You know what I mean? You put your heart and soul into something and have it end on those kind of terms. It just, uh, it's hard. So I am really, really hoping they're going to find a way to somewhat uh, get a season going. They've got a great program there. They got an ex WHL guy, Sean Van Allen, Saskatchewan guy from Seanovan, coaching the program out there. Uh, so they've really put together a team that, uh, you know, has a chance to contend at the national level. Now, obviously, you know, that kind of retirement talk, end of the line talk uh, leads me back to, to you and your career uh, kind of came to an end after the 03 season. Uh, you played 74 games that year. Um, and, and I think you know, that was, that was your final year with Atlanta, but what was it, when did you know, and, and how did you come about uh, coming to the kind of mental agreement with yourself? You know what, I'm done. It's time to move on. It, it was hard, you know, um, when I look at it, the, the body was getting pretty banged up, <laughs> um, you know, and for what I did, I, I wasn't getting any bigger and they seemed to have that super heavyweight division that was, that was coming in for a lot of the guys that you're going up against. Um, and you know, I, I always knew where I wanted to go. I wanted to come back to the farm. Uh, I wanted to come back here. And uh, family-wise, with the age of the kids and stuff, it was just a decision that was made that it was it was the right time. And looking back on it now, I, I'm 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 glad I made the decision. I always, you know, the first couple of years thinking, man, I could have squeaked out another year to the lockout and kept playing. But I was able to walk away with my health. I can do whatever I want. Um, you know, as far as uh, physically, I can still play some hockey today. So you know what, uh, I made the right decision. Yeah, and I, I mean, for a guy that uh, played the role you did, you got out of it, knock on wood, relatively unscathed. What was uh, what was maybe the worst injury you had? I know uh, everyone jokes about you know having your nose broken and, and your face taking the brunt of the punishment, but did you have any other injuries that have nagged you now into retirement, walking around the farm? Well, I, uh, in a fight with Brian Marchment, I actually uh, broke my leg. I spiral fractured my fibula, so I still got uh, two plates and 11 screws in my uh, one right leg. So when the uh, barometric pressure changes on the weather, I, <laughs> I know when it's coming. So I can tell you when a storm's coming in, um, you know, broke the hand a few times and, and obviously the nose. Uh, so the hand and stuff, it'll turn purple pretty quick uh, when the weather gets cold, really can't straighten it out. But like I said, knock on wood, I ended up uh, – you know, with a hip replacement a few years ago, and I'm not sure if that's ge- genetics or from skating, but uh, with the technologies and the surgeries and stuff the way you have it now, uh, you know, a guy's back to, you know, working all day, be on the place in rec hockey and, and still really enjoy life. 
Now I've talked to, uh, we've had a, a lot of kind of your former teammates and some early nineties guys. And uh, I know that uh, for you playing senior hockey, you were able to, to wear the, the Rokenville Tigers uh, <laughs> logo for the last handful of years. But for a guy like you in comparison to you know, other guys I've talked to, you know, playing senior was, was an option for you and you wanted to do it. Other guys, when they were done, they didn't want to do it. Uh, was that a tough transition going from the highly competitive NHL days to a couple years later, you know, drinking beers before warm-up while you're lacing them up for a senior game? No, not for me. No. Uh, and yeah, no, the league we play and you're not drinking beers before the game. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, it's competitive. And you know what, for me, the biggest thing was, like, I played a role in the NHL. And I knew my role and I knew what I had to do uh, to stay there. But you know what? I wanted to end it playing like I grew up. I wanted to, uh, you know, play the game and heaven forbid, if there's a power play, I actually got to go out there. For the power <laughs> play. You know what I mean? So that's how I wanted to end it. And I planned on doing this for a couple of years and uh, ended up playing, you know, I think I played my last senior hockey game. I think I was 48. So it was uh, first played my first one when I was 15 so it was, you know, 30-some years almost between uh, my first and my last senior hockey game. And you know what? I loved every minute of it. And uh, my boy, Dakota, uh, with uh, his season being on hold, uh, he might come back and play some senior hockey for Rokenville, and he's uh, trying to talk his dad in up for maybe a couple games so we could play together. So I'm kind of throwing around the idea, but I'm not sure how that's going to go over. <laughs> well, uh, I, I got a few more in the in the bag of questions. Obviously, you stayed in the game, uh, whether it be – you know, coaching at the AAA level in Saskatchewan, uh, you know, you scouted for Prince George uh, for a couple of years. And then, of course, you got into the broadcasting, not only a couple of years with the Atlanta Thrashers on radio, but then on the WHL on Shaw. Was it uh, kind of one of those things where you were just looking for a way to get back in the rink a little bit and keep connected? Or you know, were these things that just kind of came up and you thought, hey, I'll give it a shot? Well, it's, you know what, there's never a bad day at the rink. And, you know, the, the people are what make it. And I don't care if it's... Uh, the players or the scouts or the broadcasters, you know, hockey people are good people. Uh, and it's just an enjoyable time. I had the opportunity uh, with Shaw to do it and work with guys, you know, like uh, Peter Lombardius and Joey Kenward and uh, uh, Ray's. Oh my God. I mean, he's going to shoot me. I can't remember his name. His last name is not counting me, but it just, you know, the, the people, the passion they have for the sport and then get to, uh, like Dakota was playing junior hockey at the same time and John was. So you're kind of following the league anyways. Uh, so it was a great opportunity just to kind of use that and, and watch more hockey. Well, I, I'll, I'll kind of wrap things up. We've been doing this on, on our weekly Harvest uh, podcast every week with our guests where we just kind of rattle off a handful of questions. They've either been submitted by Weeking fans or they've come just from our, our tickle trunk of, of goods. But this one uh, did come in from a fan uh, named Kevin he wanted to know who is the toughest guy in the NHL that you ever had to fight. Oh man, uh, there's a few of them. Um, probably the guy that gave me fits was, was Rob Ray. You know, what I mean, probably not the toughest, but uh, had some real battles. Uh, you know, Marty McSorley knocked me out one night, caught me in pretty good. Uh, George Rock. You know, we had that whole era where it was just, you rattle them off. Um, but I guess probably the toughest guy probably would be uh, Probert. It was probably the guy that uh, went against, ended up fighting him like, you know, five times. And uh, you were in, you were fighting for your life every time you went against him. Yeah, I, I, that's, it's unbelievable when you look up. You know, I, I mean, I kind of grew up after, you know, your era, but while you were still playing at the tail end of your career, and I remember uh, you know, knowing your name, being small town Saskatchewan guy. But as I got older, you know, watching old YouTube videos, I, I can't believe uh, the battles that you guys had now. I mean, you've seen some fights the last couple nights and it's just a couple of guys kind of slapping around and they fall over. When you guys fought back then, it was like bare knuckle boxing and, and it wasn't just a wrestling match. So, I mean, that it's impressive to think of, of the resume on your fight card. Now, you've said before that that's a tough way to make a living. If, if you could go back and do it again, would you still embrace the enforcer role or would you change how you played uh, if you could have the same longevity of a career? You know what? If I could have made it any other way, sure. But I think that's part of the game that uh, I always wanted to, to have in there. The guys that, that I look at, that you know, the guys that are ultimate guys, I look at like Rick Tockett, Cam Neely, 
you know, those type of guys. Those were the guys who, who I, if I could go back and be like, those are the guys I wanted to, wanted to play like. Not the total finesse guys, but the guys that were the whole package. You know, a guy that I played with that had that capability was, was Owen Nolan. You know what I mean? He had that ability. Uh, I got to play with Rick Tockett later in his career. So if I could go back and could, could do it, that would be the guys that, you know, good enough to still play in the power play and get lots of minutes, but yet still bring that physical element. Uh, another question that came in, uh, I mean, this one, I'm, I'm going to say it came in, but it's, it's coming from me. As you can see behind me, I'm a memorabilia, <laughs> I'm a memorabilia collector. Uh, my wife actually joked, uh, her and I both worked for the Verdon Oil Capitals, and uh, you actually signed a, a baseball at a sportsman's dinner that you spoke at here. I think Jesse Barfield or one of the Blue Jays was at it as well. And she wanted to get your autograph because you worked for her uncle, uh, his last name's Don, I can't, Don Dunn maybe, back when you were a kid. Anyway, yeah, Yes, yes, yeah. And uh, <laughs> you, all that she had to get you to sign was a baseball. So she said, I'm proud of my memorabilia. I got Jeff Audrey's autograph on a baseball of all things but uh the question i had for you what is your coolest piece of memorabilia that you've collected kept maybe thrown up on a shelf or, or your boys have taken and displayed from your career well i got some playing in colorado i got some pretty cool game worn jerseys i got like a, a you know a patrick law game worn jersey uh along with uh you know a sackick and a forsberg um one of my you know the sticks that uh two of the sticks that really mean a lot to me. I got to play with uh, Dave Brown uh, in San Jose and Dale Hunter uh, with the Avalanche. And so I, I actually have a, a Dale Hunter signed jersey and just getting to know Dale, uh, the way he played the game, you know, 3,000 penalty minutes and 1,000 points and just the passion that he played the game with. He was an Ontario farm boy. And you know what? It just, he played the game. I mean, by the time he got to the Avalanche, he was, he was 40 years old. And playing on a line, you know, during the playoffs with guys like Warren Reichel and myself, and he still loved every minute of it. So, you know, that's one of my, I guess, you know, you wouldn't think it, but that's one of my most prized possessions. What was the coolest uh, arena to play in? Now, you played in an era where there were lots of cool old historic buildings. A lot of teams had this the older rinks before they graduated to some of the newer, bigger stadium-like buildings. What was your favorite rink to play in? You know what? It was probably the Boston Gardens, just the old Boston Gardens, just because it was so small and you were in the game whether you wanted to be or not. Like it was so tight. The fans were right on top of you, uh, you know, watched a lot of games, you know, in the Boston Gardens that were played and actually get to play in that building. And probably right up there would be Maple Leaf Gardens. Like growing up in the in Western Canada, every hockey night game, it was, you know, it was Maple Leaf Gardens. So actually the first time I went in there, and got to look around. It was kind of really surreal to think you're actually in that building. Well, uh, my co-host, Chris, uh, he's the director of game day operations for the weekings. He actually is the one that reached out to you. Couldn't be with us tonight. He's got a couple things coming up tomorrow and he just couldn't make it work, but he wanted me to ask you, uh, was it tough to cheer for your son when he was playing for Moose Jaw against the Brandon Weekings? <laughs> Were you ever uh, a little bit felt, <laughs> feel a little bit weird cheering for, for somebody other than the Brandon Weekings? You know what? I'll say no. Like family goes pretty deep. <laughs> you know what I mean? To go against family. So, you know what I mean? There's very few uh, instances when I wouldn't cheer for the Wheat Kings. Uh, but when family's involved, that's uh, not a very hard choice. Now, I imagine that uh, keeping the, the family farm in the, the bloodline is important to you. Is that part of Dakota's plan? We touched on John. He's carving his own pro hockey path. But from Dakota's perspective, is, is he want to come back and, and help you take over in the next few years? You know, he does, and he's got a huge passion for it. He's come back every summer, uh, helped me out on the farm, um, you know, and it's something that, you know, he wants to continue to do. And it's pretty cool, like for all of us, because, you know, he, him and John are the fifth generation on that family farm, you know, and to think that somebody, uh, you know, has an interest and possibly carried on further, you know, the farm turned 100 years old this year. That was, uh, you know, pretty cool moment. We had a huge celebration planned there for June 27th. But as with uh, COVID and everybody else, I guess it's going to be a 101st year celebration. But uh, but no, to have him come back and, you know, uh, help me out on the farm, which is a huge help with me and have a passion for it like he does. Uh, yeah, it's pretty special. I guess my, my last question for you, I know as you get as you get older and you start maybe thinking about retiring and, and handing the reins over uh, to your son, is if, if hockey ever came calling, whether it would be in a coaching, coaching rank, scouting rank, 
back into the media in any any uh, capacity, radio, TV. Would you ever get back into it to, as you get a little bit older and maybe want to get away from the manual labor, or are you are you in paradise right now? You, you know what? I'm doing what I want to do. You know what I mean? I, I really am here in the farm. Is it tempting at times to get back in? But I also know if you're going to be in, involved in hockey, you, you got to be all in. Right. Uh, and with and with the farm, especially with uh, you know the grain and the cattle, it's a full time job. And it's uh, if you're doing both, you're kind of giving up one or the other. So I kind of made that decision a while ago that uh, you know the farm was where I was going to put my focus. Um, so. You know, I'm very happy where I am. Well, that's awesome, Jeff. And uh, I appreciate you doing this. I know that uh, it's, a, it's a busy time of year, especially with the, the cattle and the grain and everything that's going on. Uh, so thank you for, for taking time to do this. And I know that uh, hopefully whenever the Western Hockey League season gets going, uh, we can see at the rink in Brandon and, uh, you know, maybe at a, at a sportsman's dinner moving forward because I know the fans love hearing your story. So, so thanks for doing this. Well, looking forward to making my way back to a weekend game. All right, Jeff, I'm going to let you go, and I am going to continue on with the pod. So enjoy the rest of your uh, evening, and uh, congratulations on the 100 years uh, of the Audgers family farm. Well, thank you very much. Have a good night. So that is Jeff Audgers, former Wheat King, longtime NHLer, actually finished his NHL career ranked 27th on the NHL all-time penalty minutes list. Uh, here on episode 30. Uh, again, I forgot to mention right off the hop, I did mention a little bit later, as you noticed, uh, Chris Falco is not with us this week. Uh, that is not because I've kicked him off the pod or he's been removed. <laughs> he's just had a couple things come up. Uh, it's a, kind of a busy time uh, for him, and it just couldn't work. We tried to push it with the long weekend uh, and everything that's, uh, that went, was going on this week, and we couldn't make it work. So he sends his regards, uh, and he'll be back with us next week. Of course, uh, right now, uh, as we record this here on Tuesday, August 4th, the NHL uh, continues their playoffs. Uh, tough night for the Jets tonight. Uh, Flames uh, take game three, six, two, uh, but there's still plenty of hockey to come. What a great time to be a hockey fan. A uh, couple of other things of note uh, this week. Uh, the Ontario Hockey League and the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League, there's some news leaking out there uh, about a potential change to the CHL's return to play protocol. Uh, as of right now, uh, the rumors are leaking uh, from Andrew Zadarnowski, who is a radio host on TSN 960 in Montreal, that the Q, the O, and the Dub will apparently start their season December 1st. Training camps are scheduled to open up late October following the NHL draft, and it looks like they're going to trim four games off the schedule from 68 down to 64. Uh, Jeff Merrick from Sportsnet is saying that the OHL is set to announce a 64-game schedule, playoffs featuring 16 teams, first two rounds, best of five. Last two rounds uh, will be a best of seven. Uh, there's plenty of talk about uh, the American side of the teams in uh, the Eastern Leagues as well as in the Western Hockey League. Nothing official yet from the Western Hockey League, uh, but it, there is an announcement expected in the next couple of days uh, regarding a change to the NHL or Western Hockey League's return to play. So we have no official news in regards to uh, returning to play, but hopefully uh, by next week's pod, we have a few more details and a potential timeline for uh, what's coming up and, and what weaking Western Hockey League fans can expect uh, moving forward. So uh, that'll do it. We'll wrap up episode 30 of the Weekly Harvest, again uh, brought to you in partnership with Q Country Radio, Westman Communications Group, and uh, the Brandon Wheat Kings uh, as well. Special thanks to Jeff Rogers for joining us. Uh, this week. Uh, remember, you can catch this pod at qcountryfm.ca. There's also a link at the Brandon Weekings website. Uh, you can also download it wherever you get your podcasts, uh, whether it be Spotify, Apple, uh, iHeartRadio, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also watch on WCG TV uh, as, uh, as well. Uh, we go live every Monday. This week was an exception. Uh, the podcast will be available uh, for everybody to download uh, the day after. So uh, this week, it'll be tomorrow at noon. Uh, and every other week, it's uh, Tuesday at lunchtime. So thanks for joining us this week. Uh, glad to have you with us, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Be sure to follow Q Country and the Wee Kings on Twitter and Facebook for all your Brandon Wee Kings news. Thanks for listening to the Weekly Harvest. Weekly Harvest.